Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Okay, we're in 1 Chronicles 16. We're uh, looking for a promise of God to Israel, even as they have no earthly sovereignty. They are coming out of Babylon. Persia has given them the, the permission to go back and settle the land that they were in. And Ezra and the team of scribes is putting together an official history book of Israel. And that's what Chronicles is. And Chronicles is presenting to those people in Babylon why they should come back and be part of the new building of Israel and why they should join in with Ezra and Nehemiah and do this. So chapters 1 through 8 gives a genealogy of Adam to Israel, the, the, their background. Chapters 9 through 12 shows all the different groups that make up David's kingdom. And they're not just Hebrews. They're people outside the Hebrew community, which might indicate that they're there are some people in Babylon that are coming back, a mixed multitude like what came out of Egypt. But most importantly, of all these different groups, all 12 tribes are part of David's Israel and building it up. Chapter 13 shows the ark getting moved the wrong way. They start their nation. Try, the first thing they want to do is put God in the middle of it, but they try to do it their way. And it goes bad. Uh, chapter 14, David inquires of the Lord and, and, and God is with him. And the lesson we get is, when you don't inquire of God, people get killed. When you do inquire of God, your enemies get killed. And, and, and it, it's a very clear message, what's going on in Chronicles. Chapter 15, they move the ark, they do it God's way, everything goes great, and worship explodes all over Israel. So now we get David's perspective on this, and what he does immediately afterwards is he then establishes worship as a central fixture in the nation of Israel. This is odd. We don't even know what this looks like. We don't associate any country on earth as a singing country, a country known for their song. There might be some, some small, like where a certain kind of music came out of a country or whatnot. We haven't seen anything like what we're going to see in chapter 16. An entire nation where a major fixture of what they do is ongoing song and worship all the time to the Lord God Almighty putting him on a platform, elevating his glory and glorifying him. At the end of the chapter, we see a song that David gave, which is instructions for how to give thanks to God, showing the nation how to do it. No wonder this gets put into the history book. What, what the Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to do is show the nation how important praise and worship is for the assembly of God's people. We today can learn from this. Worship is an essential part of when you gather God's people together. It's part of what we do. It's what we're known for. We sing, we study God's word, we fellowship, we pray. These are the things we do. This is what terrifies the enemy. This is what glorifies our God. Verse 1, So they brought the ark of God, and they set it in the midst of the tabernacle, and David had erected for it. That David had erected for it. They burnt, burnt, they burnt offerings and peace offerings. I'm sorry. 
Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. <laughs> this sounds small, but think of this. This is the national identity. They brought the ark to God. They did it God's way, not their own way. They were careful to know how God wanted it moved. They had to read the scriptures, not their traditions, not what other nations had done with it. They had to read the scriptures. And this is founded under how David gets gods to the center of Jerusalem is the establishing of God as the center of Israelic life. The ark is simply an image of God's presence, but God's presence is what drives what they're doing. That's why we have the dedication. The tabernacle that David built is not the tabernacle that Moses built. That's in Gibeon. We're going to see that later in the chapter. So this is a temporary chap uh, a temple that's going to house the ark or a tabernacle that's going to house the ark. The burnt offerings and peace offerings, we should be reminded what those are. If you weren't with us a few years ago when we went through the various offerings in Leviticus, these are a, an essential part of restitution and fellowship with God. We, as humanity, the understanding of the Bible is that we are sinners. It's assumed that humans are, are corrupt. What makes us corrupt is that we're selfish as heck. And we care more about ourselves than the maker that made us. We do not properly worship and serve the Lord as we should. And our indication, our flesh, our flesh inclination is to serve ourselves all the time. We're, in that sense, we're sinners. And that sin itself cannot endure in the presence of a holy God. As we are unholy, God is holy. Something has to be done to make that right. And we're not going to change God, so we need to change ourselves. God makes a law, and he says you can offer an animal sacrifice, a burnt offering, and you can put it on the altar, and instead of cooking it to perfection, you're going to burn it to a crisp. It's a waste. It's a symbol of sin. Sin is an absolute waste, and in the end, it's going to burn us to a crisp. Because when we are brought into the presence of God, that sin cannot endure. It cannot sustain itself. It will burn up in the presence of God. So a burnt offering is that. It's an image of that thing. Animals are not finite beings, or are not infinite beings. They're finite. And animals then need to be sacrificed over and over and over again to continue this image and understanding. A burnt offering is a sacrifice that's made. We give something up to recognize that we are sinners and we cannot abide the presence of God. And that burnt offering provides a covering for the Jewish people. A covering that God says, okay, I can overlook your sin because at least you recognize it. At least you see it and you're willing to admit to it. Then you get peace offerings. Once we're reconciled to God through burnt offerings, we can offer a peace offering, and that speaks of the fellowship that we have with God. Once the sin has been taken care of, the peace offering is not burnt to a crisp. It's cooked to perfection. And we, would, we give it to God as this perfectly cooked piece of meat. And then God says, you know what? I don't actually eat that. You can have it. And it's an image of fellowship. We get our strength for God, but we offer it back up to God. We get everything from God, but to offer a peace offering is to say, Lord, we just want to give you a piece of this back. And the Lord says, I tell you what we're going to do with that offering. You're going to give that to the body of, of God's people, and then you're going to share it amongst God's people. And he puts priests in charge of the distribution. It looks A peace offering looks a lot like tithe. 
you give money to the church, which gets taken by the pastor of the church and the, and the elders, and then distributed back to the church and back to the ministry in ways that will serve the people that need it to bring people closer to God, a peace offering. And so both of these become a tradition in the Jewish history. David's going to, to institute these things. And we should note before we get David's song around this, that the worship of the people is preceded by the burnt offering and the peace offering. There's an order to this. You don't enter into the worship and, and fellowship of God without dealing with your sin, without understanding that that selfish inclination that you have is the thing that keeps you away from a truthful reconciliation of your position as servant of God, ambassador of God, someone who should minister to God. God's a greater being than we are, so you're simply acknowledging that you have broken his law and you are repenting of that and you turn and you go a different direction, which is the direction God's established under his law. It's a simple idea of repentance, remission of sin, and restitution into fellowship. I'm sorry, I'll stop doing it. How can I serve? That prayer becomes what we call the prayer of salvation. That image is, is everywhere in the Old Testament. It's all God's ever wanted of humanity. And the good news here for us is that we don't have to bring animals to the temple because Jesus said he would be the restitution. He would be the remission of sins. He would be the price that's paid so that we do not have to pay for our own sin. And the same law that makes it so we can substitute an animal as an image of sin makes it so we can substitute Jesus as accounting for our sin. The only difference is Jesus is an eternal being. So he will, you, give, you give that as an offering before God. It's been given and you say that offering was for me. I accept that gift. For eternity that stands to cover your sin. Jesus was sinless. He, had, he was totally perfect. So that covers any kind of sin that would be there. It's always going to be a, a more than ample sacrifice for the sins that I might commit. So we praise God anytime we want. But we should be aware, and I think this is what communion is, is that Jesus' body and blood was given on behalf of our sins. There was a burnt offering that was made for us. There is a peace offering in that as we serve the church, God says, I'm going to bless you back. I'm going to give you fellowship. But Jesus was our peace offering too. He's the one that made it so that we could have peace with God. He's the one that reconciled us. So bless, this, bless the people. This is all good. And I, I, this to me is one of the beautiful parts about sharing faith. All of this, end, the end result of all of it is that the people get blessed. So when people want to argue for alternative lifestyles and alternative ethics and morals, at the end of the day, you can always look at those communities and societies and say, where's the blessing? I don't understand. Because when I look at this way of doing things, I see that people are blessed. What does blessed look like? For starters, the king of the country actually distributes and gives back those things that people have brought for the, for the worship of God. Those in need get meat. That's a massive blessing. You think of the ancient world and how valuable meat was. And to go in and worship God, but then go home with something in your pocket, bread, meat. Let's even throw in some raisin cake. Right? This is a note that the song of praise that goes up comes after the fellowship of the body, after the needs have been met, after these distributions have been made. It's awfully hard to praise God if you're hungry. 
And those needs getting taken care of is part of that ministry and that worship that's going to happen. And then he appointed in verse 4 some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. This is good. He's supposed to do this. To commemorate, to thank, to praise the Lord God of Israel, Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah, then Jael, and then a group of names ending with Obed-Edom who housed the ark. Jael with stringed instruments and harps, Asaph made music with cymbals, Benaiah and the Jahaziel priests regularly blew the trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant of God. It's interesting as we enter into this blessing that the people got, that the priesthood had different roles. Not all of the people that David puts into the priesthood, the Levites, do the same thing. They do different things. Now I think this is interesting. As I consider how our body works, we have people that do these kinds of things. We have people that minister before the ark, the ark being the presence of God. These are the people that take care of the area. And they make sure that if you're going to go see the ark or you're going to go be you know, next to the tabernacle, that the grounds are cleaned up, the lawn is mowed, the sprinklers are running, the snow gets shoveled, uh, the, the blankets are picked up and folded at the end of the time. Everything's taken care of and things are managed. And these people don't get named necessarily, but they're, they're the minister before the ark. And there's whole groups of people that would do these things. Anything that's needed to make the area welcoming and presentable and cleaned up, they're ministering before the ark. They're serving. The word ministry means to serve. To commemorate, commemorate is the word zakar in the Hebrew. It means to remember or recall. These are the recorders. They're the ones that have a memory. They're the database of the people of God. Their job was to remind and repeat the stories of God to anybody that came by the tabernacle. Hey, welcome to the tabernacle. Have you heard what God did with Moses? You know, families would bring their children and they'd have master storytellers share the stories of the judges, the stories of the kings that had come. They kept journals, they kept records, they kept scrolls at the temple. It's why you could assemble a book like Chronicles is you had all these scrolls in the temple. They remind the people when needed. They're commemorators. Then you have people that are there that are thankers. The word thank in the Hebrew is yada, to thank, to cast away sin. Actually, there's three meanings for yada. Yada has three different meanings. There's yada, there's yada, and there's yada, right? And so the first meaning of yada is to cast away sin. To repent. The second meaning of yada is to confess that sin or cast it away to God, confessed it to God. The third meaning of yada is to cast it away to God as an act of thanks. Lord, I give up this sin. It's yours. Thank you for forgiving me for it. Repent to God in thanks. Yada, yada, yada. Now for a non-believer, like we've heard that phrase before, right? Yada, yada, yada. And, and we use that as like a bunch of non, you know, just babbledygook. doesn't matter what they said. It's just yada, yada, yada. They went on and on and on. For a non-believer, that's what this sounds like. But for someone who respects thankfulness, the word yada is a wonderful word. It's an act of service to God to give him and thank him for his forgiveness of sin. People that are good at appreciating God to be thankful people these are a blessing to the church, and it's the third role that we see. We see ministers, we see commemorators, and we see thankful people. You ever talk to somebody and, and all they have is the stuff they don't like? They just keep bringing, I don't like this, I don't like that. The critics, the skeptics. And that's all that pours out of their mouth is what's in their heart, which is just discontent. 
But then you run into a yada, yada, yada. You run into a thinker. And all that pours out of their mouth is the contents of their heart, which is gratefulness and thankfulness. I love this about so-and-so. I, I'm, I'm in awe to God Almighty over this. This is wonderful and beautiful. Look at what that looks like. There are people that can look at my lawn and say, I love the flowers coming off of your weeds. They just can't see anything wrong with things. They're thankful people. And they're a blessing to the church. You have to have these people around. They train the rest of us. And then you get to the praise to praise the Lord. And the Hebrew there is halal. We have that in some of our songs. The word halal means to shine. What more could we do for God than be blessed by Him and praise and boast about God to the degree to which we shine? Bragging up God in everything we do. So you walk into this tabernacle of David. He's got people ministering before the ark, taking care of things. He's got people commemorating. He's got teachers and instructors remembering what God did. He's got thankful people just going around, bringing joy, encouragement, motivation. And then he's got people praising the Lord so that the whole place shines. It's natural evangelism when we show what we love. And if what we love is God, we're evangelizing. So when people know us and they're like, why are you so happy? Because I got halals. All I can think of is the goodness of God and what he's done. I want to talk about his love, his mercy. I want to talk about the barbecue I was at for church last weekend. I want to talk about how somebody in the church just blessed me in this incredible way. They saw something that I needed. I never would have asked for it. They just saw it and did it for me. It was total blessing. And they tell everything about the other saints, God, the church, worship, prayer, fellowship, and barbecues. All of it. The study of his word. I can't believe what I learned. Halal, halal, halal. As we become believers in an almighty God, I hope what pours out of our heart is halals. And you get Asaph, he's a big name uh, in verse, uh, verse 5. He's a big name in the Psalms. He's got a few of them accredited to him, I think 12. Um, he re represents a replacement in chapter 15, 17. Heman was in charge of this. There's no reason given for why David changes leadership there. But we should note that David changes leadership when needed. And that that's an interesting kind of element that gets unmentioned and untalked about. But David does have the authority to put people in and out of ministry positions, and he uses it. They have different instruments listed here, all different styles. String music is not trumpet music. It is, that's not the same thing. And I want to point out here, and I think this is kind of fun, verse 6, Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests that regularly blew the trumpets. So as you're walking around the temple area, you have these two random guys that just regularly walk around and blow trumpets. And it doesn't say if it was good or bad or if they're literally sneaking up on people and blowing trumpets in their ear. This was not a, a docile environment. This was not a peaceful environment. This was an environment where people were having fun and enjoying themselves. And you got Ben Aya running around with his trumpet. Let's just get the sense of what this place was like. It was a place of celebration, thankfulness, joy. They would have multiple services, likely having different kinds of music for different places at the courtyard. 
But to regularly blow trumpets, that is not a quiet activity. It is not serene and tired. It is an environment where kids would enjoy it. Teenagers would be fascinated by it, maybe even want to help out someday. Adults would appreciate what it does. It creates a joyful, festive, celebratory mood. And that's what God's people do when they gather together. We're really good at building things, like nations. We're really good at celebrating things. God's people are the best at it. And then David gives this song of thanksgiving, which captures just a complex conception of what it means to give thanks and what it looks like. And in writing this song, David is giving the people four different callings that they're supposed to do when they come into this. He set up this space, ark in the middle, tabernacle all around, priesthood helping facilitate. Now here's what the people are supposed to do when they come into this place. So he gives this song of David, David's song of thanksgiving. He writes it for Asaph to perform, verse 7. On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and and his brethren to thank the Lord. I want to point out, David was a harpist before King Saul. You don't do that without amazing talent and ability. Of all the kingdom, David's the one that Saul wanted to play in his courtyard. David's a competent musician, that's my point. David is an expert songwriter. We know he's written a few that we still have. For him to hand a song off to somebody else shows great humility, but it also shows what we already know about David. He makes leaders. He recognizes skill and talent, and then he lets them lead. And David, instead of being the middle of the show, hands this song off to Asaph because he wants it sung and shows leadership in trusting for Asaph to do it. This also could speak to Asaph's ability as a musician. You know, it, it could be so, like a, a moderate musician handing this off to an absolute superstar. And that when Asaph sang a song or played a song, it, it, and his brethren, that when he put something together, it was, it was stunning. And David knew that and recognized it and elevated Asaph into this position. And the purpose of it at the end of verse 7 is to thank the Lord. If we're going to thank the Lord, let's do it the best we can. Let's hand it off to those people. And it doesn't say here that Asaph was the best musician, but it does say that David trusted him with it, that David handed it off to him. So there's four callings in the song, verse 8, 23, 28, and 34. Um, The first one is to give thanks in verse 8. These four directives or callings are instructions, and then we see how to do each of those things. But to give thanks, give song, give and give thanks again respectively shows a kind of an importance on giving thanks because it bookends and in giving song and giving in general and so these are the ways that we give to the lord the lord gives so much to us he gives us total blessing all around this is how we give to god and catch this for those people that like you know jewish scholarship there are seven different ways to do it so david has organized this song it's not willy-nilly There's an order to it. Seven different things you can do to to give thanks to God. And we're going to dig into this tonight. It's like we're taking a class on how how to worship and how to do it properly. If you want the full book, it's Leviticus. That would be the book for the course. This is the Cliff Notes, David's song. This is how you do it. Verse eight, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him and sing psalms to him. 
talk of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name, and let the hearts of those who rejoice seek the Lord. Seek the Lord with his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he's done, his wonders, the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Wow. Uh, I always read songs when I'm doing my own devotions. I'll read through songs and I kind of blast through them. But when I'm doing Bible study and I'm getting ready for a Sunday morning and, and I'm, you start to break it down going, okay, how did David put this together? What's he trying to say to his audience? What can I read from this that applies to me today? And you really try to take this apart. And then you get these just, you realize how rich this is. I think the last song of David that we did, it was about a year ago now, and realized how it was completely structured as a, 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 perfect, a perfect song in the Hebrew in balance and form. In this one, you just have this, he's singing about what he wants people to perform and do and what he wants them to do. And the first one there is to call upon his name. The heart of David is the heart of God, man after God's own heart. And what he wants for the people of God to do is call upon the name of God. So what does that mean? Kara, to call out, to recite, to proclaim. We don't even have the name of Jesus in this era, we do. We have the name of Jesus. We actually can call upon the name of Jesus because we know his name. But David doesn't, but on total faith, he knows that his name is what we call out to. The unspeakable, unknown name of God to the people of Israel. But he gets it. He understands that's the core, is that calling out to God for your help is the ultimate behavior that gives thanks to God. You know, you could, you could mentor somebody for 20 years and then they never call you. They never ask for help. They never ask for your advice on anything. And, to, and in some sense, you would think, wow, I put 20 years into that person and, I, and apparently I'm not worth much to him. And God feels the same way about you. He, he put breath in your lungs. He put your first two cells together in the womb. He's watched you grow and rise. And then you never call out to him. You never ask him for anything. You never look for his advice. Not very thankful behavior. But to understand God actually made you and he made you for a reason and a purpose. He knit you together. You're beautifully and wonderfully made by God to recognize that position, to humble ourselves before God and say, God, what should I do with this? How should I do with that? We know what we serve in part by what we fear, but we know what we serve in part by who we call upon when we're in trouble. Where do we go for our foundation? Where do we go for our security? Where do we go for our sustenance? When we're worried about the things of this world, who do we call first for help on those things? When you've got a medical issue and you feel a pain in your elbow, do you pray about it first or do you go to the doctor first? And I'm not saying don't go to doctors. I'm saying where do you go first? Who do you ask for help at the beginning of things? Do you pray for your doctor that he'll have wisdom and that God will give him wisdom as he treats your elbow? So who do we call first? You get the second thing there in verse 8 is to make known his deeds. Part of being thankful to God is to tell other people what God's done in the past and to be grateful for what he's done and, and look at the history of things. It's, it's why we study Chronicles. It's why we're here. I want to know what God did so that I can make known what he's done to other people and share it with as many people as possible. This is the beauty of our role, what Israel was supposed to be doing too. Verse 9 says to sing. And he puts that in a song, so that's nice, because if you're singing the song, you're actually doing number three. 
God loves song. He loves to hear people singing. And it's even better when we don't feel like singing and then we choose to do it anyway. I just love that. There is an attitude that we take on. Not be, We don't sing because we feel like it. We sing because God's asked for it and it's the day to sing. It's a day of celebration, so we choose to celebrate. And that's a kind of sacrifice. Make no mistake about it. When you say, I'm going to ignore my feelings and worship God because he's told me to do that, then you are sacrificing your feelings as less important than the worship of God. He comes first, your feelings come second. And I would venture to say, if you give him his due first, he'll take care of your feelings second. That you always get back more from God than what you offer him, but you have to offer something. Start that arrangement. God's not going to force himself on you. He's a gentleman. Number four, it says to talk about it. Talk of his wondrous works. I think this is different than making known his deeds. I can make known God's deeds in a variety of different ways, but to talk about his wondrous works, I think has more currency to it. Like talk about what God's doing right now in the body. Talk about what, what's happening. Don't make people guess why you're so joyful. Actually, use your words to talk about it. Talk about his wondrous works. To talk about God replaces talking about everything else, right? So if you, if you, have, if you struggle with talking, about, talking, neg, talking negatively about things, talking about God is the flip of that. If you struggle with complaining, try to exercise talking about God instead. If you struggle with talking about yourself all the time, try to insert some talking about God into your conversation repertoire. Number five is to glory in God. I've come to see this verb of glory as a particular human trait. Humans are really good at bragging stuff up, at, at putting glory on things. And, and I think of glory as that idea of elevating something and putting it up as, as in a place of worship. This is so amazing. I'm going to learn everything I can about it. I'm going to learn as much as I can. Then I'm going to talk about it with as large a vocabulary as I can to as many people that will listen. And I'm actually going to recruit people into this enjoyment that I have with me. There's people that glorify golf. There's people that glorify hobbies that they have. There's people that glorify wine tasting. There's people that glorify architecture and, and human marvels of construction. There's people that glorify dinosaurs, like a lot of five-year-olds. There's people that glorify trucks. And that's, there's people that glorify plastic Barbie dolls and put them in cases. When we elevate something or we are fascinated by something to where our passion, love, and heart goes into it, that's glorifying that thing. So when we dedicate our best glorification to God, that's a way to say thank you, God. And we put God at the center of our heart. That's not to say we don't go out to movies and we don't go to hobbies and we don't have shopping. We don't do some of those things. There's nothing wrong with that. Do we glorify those things or do we glorify God? Number six, verse 11, we seek him. God compels us to seek him. And I, I wonder if this isn't because God wants to hide and play hide and go seek with us, but a sense of God's never going to reveal to humanity more than humanity wants to see. There's a kindness. If he, if he overwhelmed humanity, you lose free will. It says in the end, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, not, not just the people who love the Lord, but everybody. And there, there will be a revelation at the end. At this point, though, God reveals what people want to see, and he invites us. 
I like to say Christianity might not be an inclusive religion, but it's an invitational religion. Everyone's invited to the table. But we have to seek the Lord. We have to seek what He wants, not what we want. And that, that essential shift of my attention going off myself onto an Almighty God, that's the shift He's looking for. And it starts with attention. So in Deuteronomy 4.29, I just want to give you other examples. From there you will seek the Lord and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and all your soul. New Testament, Hebrews 11.6. But without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who did diligently seek Him. If we seek God, He rewards that. And He invites us to do it. It's amazing. He asks us to do something just so He can bless us. If we're missing anybody, what does it look like to seek them? I, this is worth our time to think about this. What does it mean to seek God? Well, think about this. If my wife Stephanie were missing, I came home one day and she wasn't at home. and I didn't know where she was. Well, initially I would kind of look around the house, try to find her. I'd see if she left me a note. A lot of times she leaves a note saying, here's where I went. I'll be back. I'd look around the house and I don't see any notes or maybe I did read a note but it was vague and then I would go back and I'd search our room I'd see if she had any signs in there and if she had something you know does she have a journal does she have any does she have receipts like where she's been shopping do I see anything and now I start to get worried so I call the kids hey hey you guys know where mom went you know what she's up to no I, I don't so I'd call her sisters I'd call her mom any of you know where, where Steph is? I, I'd, I'd check the most likely places that I would find her if I were seeking her. And then if, if all else failed, I would start calling in help. I'd start calling people from the church saying, hey, I'm trying to find Steph. I, I can't seem to find her. Uh, can you guys help me make some phone calls and start doing some searches and looking around the property? And with the question, have you seen Steph lately? If we seek God, it looks, I'm going to argue, almost identical. If you're missing God in your life, start by looking for notes. Is there a book that he's left telling you where he is and what he's up to? Is there a, maybe a testament, be it an Old Testament or a Newer Testament, that you could find that would tell you where you would be and you could look for him? Start reading that and looking for what he actually says. Well, you, you try to read it, maybe you're, you, you struggle with reading, so you listen to it on tape, see if he left a voice recording on the phone, you know, that you could start um, asking around and going to the places where you're most likely to find him, like church, like a Bible study, like a worship night, you know, or a work day where you're helping people out that are a bunch of believers and you start going to those things where you think God is most likely to be. And then you start asking around, hey, have you seen God? What's God doing in your life lately? What does it look like when God asks in your life? I'm trying to even understand what he looks like. Can you describe him to me? And you start asking the people that know him the best first. And this is what the enemy would love you to ask the people on YouTube who, who maybe know him the least how what he's all about and then get you confused with 20 different wacky human theories but you go to his church and the people that bear fruit because they've been living in his spirit for a long time ask those people what he looks like what he sounds like what he has to say and i think you're going to find god if you go looking for him because he's not playing hide and seek 
He's just being courteous. So we seek God in his word. We look for him in our day-to-day life. We ask other believers about him. We talk about him. And then we get to verse 12, which is the seventh way we can give thanks to God, is to remember him and to, to recall it. When we do find God, we have to remember that we found God. Miracles can fade over time. Our memory left unpracticed will fade away. So when we have those moments, those connections where we've seen God, we've interacted with God, it has to be intentional that we remember those things. Verses 15 through 19 are going to be a sample of this. So we remember our devotional time every day, every week, every communion, every life event. We recall and we remember what God has done for us in our life. We look back and we see it all. David's audience is is Israel. O seed of Israel, his servant, though, that's not Israel. Let's take a second look at this. Verse 13 has three different groups of people. Do you see that? The middle group of people, you children of Jacob, that's Israel. That's the people of Israel. But O seed of his servant, the seed of Israel, his servant. Well, what's the seed of Israel? And we've talked about you know, this to some degree, but the seed of Israel is a major Old Testament theme that David's very aware of. It's always in reference to the Messiah. The seed of Israel is Messiah. He's the one, Genesis 3, that's going to come and re- rectify or, or amend or purchase back humanity from the sins of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3. The seed is promised to Abraham, Genesis 21, 26, 28. The children of Jacob are Israel, and the chosen ones then is another group. Who are the chosen ones? So if you've got this, you know, who are the people giving thanks to God? O seed of Israel, his servant, capital H on his there, uh, is this nameless Messiah that they don't have a name for. Then you've got the children of Jacob, that's Israel. Then you've got his chosen ones. Well, aren't the children of Jacob the chosen ones? And so one way to read this, and I think the way David would have wrote it, is he's referring to Israel in all senses. Israel carries the seed, Israel's the children, Israel's the chosen, but it's also perfectly prophetical, you know, in that we are talking about a singular seed, Jesus Christ, the children of Jacob, Israel, the nation, his chosen ones, the church. Where do I get that from? John 13, 18. Jesus says, I don't speak concerning all of you. I know who I have chosen, but that scripture might be fulfilled. Well, maybe that fulfillment of scripture is this verse 13 we're looking at right now. That there are chosen people that he has picked. And the Messiah will come. He will come to Israel. He will come to his chosen ones, Jews and Gentiles alike. All right, we'll get into this a little bit. We've got all seven ways to give thanks to God. Here's an example of each one of those. He's the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, which the word, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, for it to an everlasting covenant, to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when you are few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. So his judgments are in all the earth. God's authority is covering the earth. It's not just Israel. It's a special covenant that he's made for everybody. And they're unique in their role. There's a thousand generations. This is a way to say forever, eternity. It's only 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. So when he says a thousand, it's just for context. It means just forever and ever. Remember his covenant, Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. 
Israel, Exodus 19, and he made another covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7. And David's referring to all these covenants, but then he says an everlasting covenant. That's the one he made to all of those people regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Remember that. This is interesting. He's writing this song praising Jesus before Jesus ever showed up in person. I love that. Here we are in historical context after Jesus' resurrection. When we sing songs like this, we know exactly what we're singing about. The plan of God's already been revealed to us. That's an amazing part of what we do and what we've learned. So in verses 18 and 19, David links this covenant to the land itself and also to the true eternal covenant that's coming, that's a spiritual covenant. We too can look back and remember what God has done for Israel and the land that he's given to Israel. And we can look back and look at the eternal covenant that he's made with Jesus Christ. Same covenants that David's singing about hundreds of years before Jesus. Verse 20, when they went from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do not do my prophet no harm. This is interesting because the Jewish people not only do experience harm, but clearly David is, is contextualizing this, that though harm was done, in general, God has protected Israel as a nation. And, he's, and, and verses 20 through 22 are referring to Israel as a nation. And so for David, like, what's he referring to? Is, is he referring to when the children of, of Jacob went to Egypt under Joseph? Remember, there's the famine. Joseph has his brothers. They need food. And they all move down to Egypt. And they're there thriving and growing in number until the Pharaoh says, you can't worship God, which is exactly what this chapter is about, by the way. It's at that point that he blocks the worship of the Israelite people that God intervenes and we have the Exodus story. God won't let that king interfere with the worship of God. That's what really matters. You can have them make bricks. You can even take away the straw, but you can't take away their worship. You can work these people to the bone, but you will not take them away from their God. That's, I think, what David's talking about here. What, what, he, what I think is interesting is he's writing this prior to Babylon, but Ezra is sticking this into Chronicles because clearly Ezra is adding this song in because he wants the people to hear that they've been in Babylon for 70 years and now they're getting their land back and the, the kings of that land didn't touch them. So the promise of God that David's singing about has held true through the Babylon exile. It's going to hold true through their diaspora after Rome crushes the city of Jerusalem. And they're going to be returned to their land, not without hardship and trial, but without destruction and dissemination. They are united as a people. And as they return from Babylon, they forgot about all those ancient idols and statues that they used to put up. They stopped doing that after Babylon. They learned their lesson. And after the diaspora, they've stopped referring to themselves by various tribes. That's just gone. They're just Israel now. And, that, and when you look at how this plays out, I, I think this is interesting. That idea of David writing in such a way that he's talking about his own existence, what was true then, memory. And then he's talking about probably his own life experience. Remember, David went to live with the Philistines for a season and he was protected by God. But he's also talking about the future, what's going to happen with Babylon and the diaspora. 
So prophetic voice works like that. When they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, they tend to write things that sound awfully true, even if in, re in reference to other events. So they're singing and they're talking about it. In, so far in verse 8, David called, has called on his name and he has made known his deeds, verse 9. So what the third thing was to sing, and when we get to verse 23, that's exactly what David's showing them. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Not just Jews, all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. And declare his glory among the nations, his wonders amongst all the people. Tell people about it. His glorify in it. And for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, and he's also to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the people are idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Proclaim the good news. <laughs> Again, it's amazing how David writes things, and they sound awfully true today, too. So post-Jesus, the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pre-Jesus, the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his salvation. His there should be capitalized. Do you see that? He's talking about God's salvation. And obviously in David's head, God's salvation might be saving them from Egypt, but that's just a shadow of the real plan. So David writes a perfectly true song that's even more compelling after Jesus Christ. Among the nations, all peoples. For God is, for he is, for all the gods of the peoples, the things the world relishes, we don't. What all those people glory in, we don't glory in. And that's not a loss. That's not a negative. The reason we don't glory in those things is because we honor the majesty of God. We, what we glorify in is so much bigger than the empty garbage of the world. It's not even close. It's not, a, it's not even something to debate. If you don't understand that the majesty and honor of God is worthy of praise, you're blind. You don't see what I see. You've missed what I've enjoyed. And I am, all I can do is give you an invitation and say, trust me, it's waiting for you. If you aim small, if you just aim to not sin and stay out of trouble, well, you're going you're gonna to hit, hit small. That's what you're going for. If you aim for the honor and majesty of God, you still might miss. We're all sinners. But you will grow and you will develop and real worship helps you see and understand the honor and majesty of God. It draws you closer to God. And what's there when you get there? When you get closer to God, what's waiting for you? Strength and gladness. Ah, verse 27, strength and gladness. That's what we're going for. Oh man, you don't do that. You don't... You don't drink that. You don't take that. Man, you're missing out. Man, I'm not missing out at all. I'm getting the strength and gladness of God. I think gladness is a great measure of worldview. At the end of the day, as you've embraced your worldview, has it given you joy and peace? Gladness? Are you actually a happy person? Or is your happiness just a veneer that you put on because deep down you're not happy at all? There is no peace. Boy, I feel sorry for people when they advocate for their position, their worldview, their ideas, the laws they want to pass, but deep down there's nothing there. They're heartless people. And I don't give up the things of the world, I run from them. <laughs> like They're not worthy of having. I'd rather go to bed every night with peace in my heart than millions of dollars in my bank account. 
I'd rather go to bed without shame for sin than, than, than having all the delights this world might have to offer. Strength is not a weakness. It's the opposite of that. Gladness is not sadness. It's the opposite of that. I choose strength and gladness. That's what I'm seeking the Lord for. So when you meet people that are anxious or angry or weak or prideful or empty, offer them majesty. That's the alternative. Hey, this path you've been on, man, I knew you since high school. There's no joy in your path. Are you ready for a different one yet? You're ready for something different than that? Because look at the fruit of this. Now David shows how to glory God. This song's a tutorial. Here's how you do it. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship the Lord in beauty and holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The Lord is also firmly established. It shall not be moved. So we give to the Lord. One can, one can feel, you're probably cringing because here comes a tithing lecture. We'll talk about tithing. We'll get into that. But it's not just about that. Verse 28 starts with, O families. What do you give to the Lord? Literally, give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. One of the greatest things we give to God is we say, this family is yours. And when new families form, a husband and a wife get married and a new family gets born, to say, Lord, this is your family. We give it to you first. We put our eyes on you. We put you at the center of our family, put you at the center of life. When we have kids, we're going to get rid of idols and we're going to put you in the middle of their lives. We're going to show them strength and gladness and majesty and truth. You know what? There's no better gift to give to God than that. Have him be at your heart. Give him your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Give to the Lord, O families of the people. Now you could say, well, families is the audience he's talking to. Okay, you can read it that way too. In David's time, a household would be multiple couples, generations, families. Today we might say tribe or clan. So when he's saying, oh, families of the people, he's talking about entire groups of Israelites. Dedicate that group as an audience for this song. That works just fine too. We give to God as families. We give to God the tending of our home, structuring it under laws that look a lot like God's laws. And then give to the Lord glory and strength. Glory. If God acted and did wonderful things and nobody saw it, there's no glory for that. Yet God is worthy of glory and praise. He's worthy of our, our, our attention. And if we, if it can't happen that God doesn't get glory because God's created the, the world itself, which is designed to glorify God. All of it. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare it. So if the heavens can figure it out without vocal cords, why can't we? Right? The earth gives glory to God. Luke 19, 14, Jesus answers to the people. He says, if these people should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out because God has, is worthy of praise and it is truthful and right that he gets praise, then he gets praise. We're invited to do that, but God doesn't need us to do that. I think that's key. We have an invitation, but we are not forced to. And the plan of, and, the, and the glorification of God will occur no matter what. But we have an opportunity and an honor, verse 27. We have an honor to do that. 
It's, a, it's what we were made for. Then it says strength, glory and strength. It's interesting that in verse 27, strength was what God gave to us. So this gets us to a key theological idea. Whatever strength we have comes from God. So when we give to God glory and strength, we're not giving something that cost us. That was a gift to us in the first place. We're simply giving it back to God. That's what you call a relationship, a reciprocal relationship. He gives us the strength we need. We give him a portion of that back and we honor God with doing that. And that's how we show thanks to God. That's how we give to God. So we give back what's his. We give God the credit for the things he's given us. This is what leads to gladness. And, and the reason why we do this is in verse 29, give to the Lord the glory due his name. Why do you need to do this? Because he's due this. It's his to have. It's his reputation. It's his agency. It is proper and right to do it. That's why we do it. It's not that God has some deep need for being praised and given attention to. He's, he's, not, a, you know, he's not an egomaniac. It's that he is glory. He is wonderful. He is worthy of praise. So we do it because it's right. And when we do what is right, we are righteous. We bring him an offering. Verse 20. This is a sensitive area for some people. It is an absolute central aspect of worship to bring an offering. And again, I don't think we bring offerings. God owes the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need our cattle. The worship system was never because God wanted to smell burnt offerings. God doesn't need our gold and our money. It was never about the money. If it's got Caesar's face on it, let him have it. He doesn't need your tithe. It's not what God needs on this. Church will do just fine. We've actually, we don't even pass a plate around here, right? People that are, people that have been around for a while eventually find out where the love box is, but we, we almost make it a hide and seek kind of thing. We don't need your money. We're here to bless you. Why do we do that? Because God did that for us. And we want to bless you. Those of you that do put money in the love box or give to the ministry, we put, take that money, we put it right back into the ministry. We use it to, um, to feed ourselves. We use it to replace things when they get broken. We use it to support the ministry, our ministry and other people's ministry. We use it to support ministers and people that are doing the ministry. And we make sure they're not spending their own money on doing it. So we take care of our pastors. We take care of the foods ministry. We take care of the music ministry. We take care of the teaching of the word and make sure that that goes out and goes forth as best we can. All of those things are absolutely what we do with offerings. And it wasn't any different in David's day. People were expected to come and bring offerings. And those offerings were to help support these Levitical priests that were doing all this work around the ark, all these different jobs that they had. This is what they did because people brought their offerings. If people don't bring their offerings, you don't really have a staff of people to kind of tend to these things during the week. Yet we're supposed to be doing these things day by day. We're supposed to have these people there. So one way to think of offering, and I'll just give this as a thought. This is a lesson I learned. When I was a young person and I was immature and just starting my faith, I thought, man, it's tough to give up 10%. Tithe is 10%. So the, the word means 10th. And you take a tenth of your increase, whatever you gained in that year, or that month, and you give it back to God. And I always thought, man, it's hard to give up that 10% because I need it to pay bills and do things with it. And, 
and I, you know, I got to buy my new sneakers and, and fix the car. And, and I never seem to have that 10% around. And you're right. The world will never let you have that 10% around. But there's a second way to think about it. And that's this. I would have nothing if it wasn't for God. He gave me my breath. He gave me my strength. He gave me whatever talents and skills I have. He gave me my mind. He gave me my ability to work. All of the blessings I get essentially originate from God's blessing me. He gives me 100% of my increase. He's blessed my crops. He's helped me keep my job. He's kept the economy there. He's kept the dollar from imploding up until now. But I, I get to keep 90% of everything God gives me. Heck, if, if my, if my uh, sister borrowed me $20, she expected all $20 back. When God borrows me everything, he only expects 10% back. That's a pretty decent deal. No bank would stay in business running that kind of deal. So thinking of it that way, and, and I remember just a brother of mine, that Jeff, that you know, I, I asked him, like, what do you do and how much do you tithe and what percentage do you do? And he's like, dude, it's all God's. Everything's God's. I pay my bills and I give him whatever I got left because it all belongs to God's. And it was just a different, he introduced me to a completely flipped way of thinking about my tithe. And so I started taking out 10% before I even put it in my, in my checking account. Like it gets separated into a separate checking account before it even touches mine. Because I don't want to see it in my account because <laughs> I've dedicated it to God. It's his and it's reserved for him. So why would I tease myself by putting it into my checking account just to take it out of my checking account? So I started really thinking that different. When we raised our kids, we made them three piggy banks. Here's your savings. Here's your spending. Here's your tithe. And when they got a dollar, they would put a dime into one, a dime into the second, and they'd put 80% into spending. Have fun. But that discipline of just setting it apart aside, it got, again, God doesn't need the money, but he needs us to consecrate. It's the practice of consecration. It's the practice of letting go and holding your money with a looser grip, not being stingy or, or, or greedy. Worse yet, to be restricting the generosity that you would have with other people. It is a joy to have enough to give away. It's not only a joy to consecrate 10% out of, out of thankfulness to what God's given you and appreciation for it. Hey, if you find somebody's wallet, there's a good chance they might give you a tip. Like, hey, thanks for finding my wallet. You give them back everything that was in the wallet and then they give you a little something saying, thank you for being honest. And I think tithing looks a lot the same way. He gives us 100% and we tip him 10% and say, hey, thank you. And he says, yeah, I feel appreciated because you're acknowledging that it was mine to start with. And you, you had, we had every ability to just run away with it and steal it. But instead, we, we were honest and we said, Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. If you've given nothing up, there's no value in it. Come with an off, bring an offering and come before him. If you come before God and it's cost you no time, no money, no work, and every ministry is designed to make it easier on your time and your schedule, there is no sacrifice in that. And there's no blessing in that. 
You have to make a sacrifice. We give up our Sunday mornings. They're not ours to start with. He gave us our breath. So Sundays belong to him. They don't belong to my family. They don't belong to my friends. They don't belong to my employers. Nobody gets Sunday but God. It's consecrated. It's set aside. My time is tithed in that sense. It, I don't even, it doesn't even get to go on my calendar per se, right? It's God's before everything else gets scheduled. He gets first dibs, first fruits. And anybody else who wants demands on that time, they don't get it. And that's frankly a kind of a cool evangelism tool. Hey, do you want to do, we got this thing or this activity, it's happening. Sorry, it's on Sunday. I know you do church. And you're like, well, I'm sorry, I can't be there. Why not? It's just church. No, no, no. It's church. And this is just your thing. See, you get lower priority than God. And that's not mean and cruel and standoffish. That's actually telling other people the relevance and value of your God. Your God is more valuable than that thing. It's an evangelism tool. But if you dismissed those things consecrated to God all willy-nilly for any old thing that comes up, well, you know, it's, you know, we really have this, uh, you know, you know, rubber band racing thing going on. It's a once in a lifetime chance to be at it. It's like, man, I got Bible study going on. And going through Chronicles chapter 16 might be a once in a lifetime activity for me. I mean, I may, the Lord might come back or I might be dead before Sean ever gets to this chapter again. Well, you can just listen to it on podcast. It's not the same thing as fellowship, prayer, worship and song, barbecue. There's more to Sundays that I consecrate than just the learning of the word. God says there's more of that. Oh, to worship the Lord. Going back to our verses. You know, I, this idea of giving to God, I, it's such a powerful thing. But again, it's, to frame this is we're not giving anything up when we give to God. We're simply saying thank you. We're returning to God a portion of what he's given us. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. He deserves it. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in beauty and in holiness. When we do this, when we give our time, when we give our, our ministerial service, when we work and help build things, we plan, we make meals, we clean up, we, we get teachings ready to go, we get music ready to go. All of those things God receives as a gift. And, and, and it's beautiful and it's holy and there's nothing about that I want to pull back on or shortchange. Why do we give to God? Because it's beautiful to give to God. It's holy to give to God. I think we forget in America what beauty is sometimes because we've seemed to associate beauty just with a physical appearance. That's cheap. Frankly, our society doesn't even understand what beauty is when it comes to physical appearance anymore. The, the idea of beauty has gotten so muddy that the enemy must be celebrating. But beauty is God himself. Beauty is holiness. The good and the right and the true are golden images that shine before humanity. Halal. This is what's beautiful. This is what's right. Everything else is a shadow of that. It doesn't even come close. It's distinct. It's beyond. It's supernatural. We live in a world that has spiritual beauty and our world doesn't understand it. They don't recognize it. They're blind to it. They can't figure it out because they're not exposed to it. 
all we need to be doing is helping them to see that. 30, we tremble before him. He's powerful. It's amazing how many people think they can fool God. They can put on a fig leaf and hide from God. They'll deal with God when they get to heaven. And man, they got some things to say to God. And they got opinions about God. Uh, No, you tremble before God. It's amazing how an atheist is like, well, in a world where there would be a God, I don't think I could honor a God that does this, that, and this, and that. And it's like, if there were a world with a God, who would you be to say what he can do and what he can't do? Honestly, it's an inconsistent philosophy that if there was a world with a God, that you would have some sort of brazen approach towards that almighty, all-powerful God. No, 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 no. First of all, there is a God. He is all-powerful and almighty. He's left a letter on the bed on how to find him. And, and he's not to be trifled with. Ask Uzzah, right? He doesn't get messed with. So your arrogance and your pride has a season that it will last, but it will crumble and disintegrate under the power of an almighty God. So we give God an offering because he's do it. We give it to him because it's beautiful. We give it to him because we tremble before him. God deserves all of it. And he only asks for a small fraction of it. Where else do we see God get glorified? Where else do we look? Verse 11, like we're supposed to seek him. Here's some places to look. Verse 31. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that's in it. And then... The trees of the woods shall rejoice before the Lord, for he's coming to judge the earth. Again, we're all invited to be glad in God. We're all, it's an open invite. We can see God in all things. We can seek him. Number six, we can seek him in all things. God's revealed himself through all of creation, and this is part of what we humans can do exceptionally well. We're made for it. I think there's certain things like fire and water and air and forests and earth that we can meditate. We can sit and watch a fire for hours and just gel on it. We're made to be in wonder. Tourism's a major industry in America. What do you do for tourism? You go visit things that God has made. You look at the mountains of the, the Rockies, the, the prairies of Iowa, you, you can look at the Appalachian Hills and the smoke touching the top of those forests. You can look at the seas and the Gulf Coasts and the endless beaches of Florida made of white sand, crushed seashells. Glorious, wonderful, beautiful. They all proclaim God's glory. And David writes that in his song. He gets this. David wishes for us to see that. Verse 31, the first word there is, let the heavens rejoice. This is his heart. He wants God to be glorified. Let it happen in everything. David sees these things and they do sing the praises of God for those that look at them. They are evidence of God. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. He says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Everybody can see that the earth is this amazing place. It's wonderful. So verses 8 through 12 all kind of laid this out. One, we call on God. We tell God. We sing to God. We talk to God. We glory in God. We seek God. Now the last thing is we remember God. 
He's coming to judge the world. There's a promise that's still pending here at the end of verse 33. He's coming to judge the world. Remember that. Remember what he said. Don't just remember what he's done in the past. Remember his prophecy, what he said he will do in the future. So verse 34, Oh, give thanks to God, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. And say, Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your place. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. First of all, don't miss the shades of the Lord's prayer that are in these verses. Do not miss how, how Jesus has taken some of these concepts and shown us how to pray because David uh, wrote this and put this together. It's a great model of that. Remember that he judges the unclean, the defiant, the corrupt, the selfish, the twisted. Remember that he judge, judges them. He's coming to judge, verse 33. But then give thanks to God, for he is good. He's actually righteous. It's not a bad thing that he's coming to judge. Anyone that's been hurt, abused, crushed, oppressed, there is a, a justice to God that he will make those things right. Those people will account for it. They'll either account for it themselves, good luck with that, or they will have Jesus who died on the cross to pay that price for them. Praise the Lord. But they, it will be accounted for. There will be no twisted thing that's left twisted at the end of days. He will straighten all things. He is good and he's righteous and we can give thanks that we serve a good God. Hey, look, there's a realistic possibility. What if the Almighty God was nasty? What if he was evil? What if he had no law and it was just arbitrary and he kept changing the meaning of words every two years? Right? What if there was nothing fixed and we just had to guess what would make God happy? Well, welcome to pagan worship with arbitrary gods that act more like humans than gods. It's amazing how good our God is, how wonderful our God is, and his mercy endures. And remember, his mercy endures forever. That when he gives mercy, it is permanent. He doesn't take it back. He doesn't keep a record of wrongs. He throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. Done deal. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. And give that thanks back to God. Thank you, God, that you forgave me my sins and you don't keep bringing them up. The only thing that brings them up is my own shame. But Lord, save us, O God of our salvation. God's the one that provides the salvation from the law that he created. You'd say, how could a, a, how could a good God make laws and then hold people accountable to him? Well, actually, he's the same God that though he holds people account to them, he's the same God that if we accept his favor and his blessing and his gift, he's actually going to save us from the same thing. That sounds fair. Gather us together. David's prayer, our prayer, man, bring your people together. And Steph and I often pray for this. We just pray that God will bring together the remnant, those people that just adore God. And we want to serve God. We want to be good people. And those people with that heart, I think the Holy Spirit fosters that kind of heart. Because it's a heart that seeks after the Lord. So gather us together. Unity is good and it's of God. That we, we like to gather with people that are of, of, of that mind. And we, we invite people to do it. So gathering together, David puts that right into his song. That God's people would gather and join. Deliver us from the Gentiles. This is like when Jesus said, deliver us from the enemy. Deliver us from temptation. Right? The Gentiles were the antagonistic force in the world for David's generation. 
But today there, we see that, you know, Jesus welcomed the Gentiles in. He forgave them. And he definitely, one way to deliver you from the enemy is to turn the enemy into your friend and ally and brother and sister. Yeah? You're delivered either way. So God answers that prayer. And we can pray, though, deliver us from our selfishness. Deliver us from our worry about what the world thinks. Deliver us from a, a, a demonic spiritual force that's rising in our world. Deliver us from those things. Protect us, God, from those things. We know that he's greater than all three of those things. He's almighty, and we tremble before him. We don't tremble before other people. To give thanks to your holy name. You know, all of these things, when God gathers us together, that's a reason to give thanks to God. When he delivers, delivers us from evil, that's a, a reason to give thanks to God. When he gave us our salvation and he gave it to us himself, that's a reason to give thanks to his holy name. He's done everything right. He's made it every possibility for people to come to God. That invitation is still standing. It won't last forever. The invitation... There will be a day of judgment and reckoning where there will, he, he will call an end to it all. I praise God and give thanks that he's waiting because there's somebody that he's waiting to join the kingdom of heaven and, and that person is worth waiting for to him. But there will be a point where anybody who is going to come into the kingdom has made that decision and anybody who isn't going to come into the kingdom is stubborn and hard-hearted about it. And God knows that it's not, it's not worth extending anymore. But blessed be the, the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, before time and after time. First and foremost, we bless God and we direct our blessings to God. We wish for his name to gain respect, love, praise, because it makes everyone and everything better. So when we say blessed be God, and, and we, one thought is like in humility, who am I to bless God? Yet one way we can give thanks is to say, Lord, bless you. Bless all the things that you do. Bless the work that you're doing. Bless the, the people that you're calling. And all the people said amen and they praised the Lord. The, this position where Israel gets founded, and I think Ezra's trying to point this out, it's important to know that as a nation, they praised the Lord together. It wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't relegated to zones outside the city proper. It wasn't uh, canceled off of YouTube. It was absolutely the center of the national identity, which was to praise the Lord. Who wouldn't do that? When is the good news presented like this? I think when we see the people of God gathered together, praising the Lord, shouting amen, which means so be it, truth, truth, so be it. When we see that happen, you'd have to be a fool to deny that there's a value in the kingdom of God. You'd have to be a fool. So David left Asaph, verse 37, he left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly and every day's work required. So he leaves that ministry in Jerusalem with the Ark and that temporary tabernacle he built and Obed-Edom with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun and Hosha and the gatekeepers and Zadok, the priest and his brethren, the priests before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high priest at Gibeon. So you got Asaph in Jerusalem, you got Zadok in Gibeon making matching services, so twin services, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the burnt altar of burnt offering regularly morning and evening and to do according to all that was written in the law of the Lord which he commanded Israel. 
And with them, Heman and Jeduthun and the rest who were chosen were designated by his name to give thanks to the Lord because of his mercy and endures forever. Why is he doing this? Because God's mercy endures forever, so our worship should endure. And with them, Heman and Jeduthun, to sound aloud the trumpets and cymbals. They're kind of the matching pair of trumpet people at the other site. And the musical instruments of God. Now the sons of Jeduthun were gatekeepers. So the idea that they do this regularly, verse 37, they regularly. One and done wasn't good enough. The institution of the country wasn't good enough. The idea and part of remembering God is that this regular worship, and here the worship is every day, verse 37. Like, we don't even hold that standard. Here's the thing, in the book of Acts, they met as a church, they met every day. And I'm kind of convicted by that because though I'm interacting with somebody from the church almost every day, we don't actually corporately meet every single day, but the early church did. And people say, well, we don't see the same kinds of miracles they did in the early church. And I'm like, well, we don't do what they did either. If we met every day, I bet we'd see a little more of the results that they saw. So for those of you that want to start a new Bible study or add a Bible study during the week, and you let us know, we'll announce it. We'll start having opportunities on more days of the week if we have more leaders step up that want to teach. It'd just be awesome. That's the main idea of this is that it's regular. And so they have this regular worship in Jerusalem, this regular worship in Gibeon. They do it morning and evening. And then most importantly, they do it according to the word of the Lord. They do it God's way. This is the whole lesson of the last three chapters. Do it God's way. And they do it according to it. The purpose of worship should be the result of the lifestyle. The reason we do worship is to leave worship and act and live accordingly, to do according to the word. Jesus said when you pray, and you, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in synagogues on the corners of the streets that they can be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus warned us against this behavior of just doing church and not doing the life accordingly part. If we don't live according to God's law, we don't even make an effort to do that. What was that worship all about? It was false. It was hypocritical. It was fake. You know, we gather on Sundays, but the point is to strengthen us for the rest of the week. This is the one day of the week we can, we can put our guard down and just be with other believers. It's sacred space for us. It renews and recharges us to go do the work, but we got to choose to do it. We don't pretend to. So, don't be one thing on the outside of church and another thing on the inside. Try to make that as consistent as possible. You'll say praise the Lord just as easily in a church as you will outside of a church. You know, one thought on this is people say, well, I, I'm also a hypocrite if I come to church and I, I make believe like I'm in a good mood. You're right. Sometimes people, you come to church and you say, I'm struggling right now. But let's, let, here's the thing. I think we have some generations coming through where the, the opposite is their real struggle. Their struggle isn't to be honest about their pain and their struggle they're a little like too open about it to the point where their pain and their struggle take the prominence of almost a place of worship how you doing oh i'm really struggling this week and they're struggling every week everything's a struggle everything's a problem so then when you you introduce the this idea of worship and thankfulness to god well i don't feel like worshiping i'm having a distress i've been triggered this week and there's a sensitivity that is not godly there's no strength in that. There's no glory in it. There's no majesty in it. There's no holiness in it. It's just an endless loop of despair that this generation coming up is having. Right? And you want to say something kind of harsh like, get over yourself. 
but you know that there honestly there's some real issues going on with that generation and they're struggling on it to do according to what god commanded though their feelings don't matter and so to say my feelings are less important than my obligation stick with your obligation if you're distressed if you're stressed if you're anxious if you're angry if you're worried if you're down do what God's asked you to do. You don't have to be fake about it, but do it. Sacrifice those other things. Don't worship yourself. Worship God. Don't worship what other people think of you. Worship God. Don't worship what this culture expects of you. Worship what God expects of you. Glorify in it. Do according. If we regard God and we're thankful to God and we sing to God, then plain and simple, we submit to God. Otherwise, you're not doing, if you're not doing according to what he said, then you are not his servant. You're your own servant. And the sacrifice costs something. I'm going to burn up my selfishness and glorify God Almighty. Why do we do this? Verse 41, because his mercy endures forever. Because it's his due. Ezra wants this emphasized. This is what Israel is all about. Israel is this. It is a worshiping nation of people giving glory to God for all the world to see. And you know what? This is exactly what Jesus asked of the church. To be a worshiping gathering of people to show the holiness of God and glorify God and all the world can see it. That's our mission. Like, what a great gig. What do you do for a living? I glorify God so all the world can see it. That's what I do for a living. No, no, no. What do you really do for a living? I really do that for a living and then I do some other things to make money to pay for my food. But I'm so glad, and I'm going to give glory to God even in that. I'm so glad he, that I have a money, a job that makes money so I can eat food because God's provided my food in that. And it's like, wow, you just can't get past glorifying God. Nope, I can't. It's what I do. You see? Verse 43, then all the people departed, every man to his house, and David returned. What do they do when they go back home? To bless his house. Take what you get at a worship service and bring it home with you. Bless your house. After corporate worship, they go home and they start living it. They bless their houses. So that's what I want to pray for. You know, we sing songs, we gather together, we pray together and we do that, but we're going to bless the house. Here's what we're going to do after I pray. We're going to pray for each other. And I want, we're going to break up into groups of two or three. You guys know we do this every week, but don't miss it. We're going to bless each other here and then we're going to go home and we're going to bless our families the same way. Go pray for your families. Go study the word with your families, just like we did here. Sing worship with your families, just like we do here. Like, take what you're learning here and bring it to your homes. There's no greater blessing than a home that serves the Lord. It's absolutely incredible. So enjoy it and be blessed by it. Get your strength and gladness in it. Then you come back next week, tell me all about it. And in doing that, you've met all seven of the things that, that David just asked you to do. What a gift! What an amazing religion that this is what we're called to do and that's what we're forced to get into. And so I appreciate every bit of this in this chapter and uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your gifts. We thank you for the minimal things that you have asked us for. The, 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 the fraction of what you give us is what you want us to give back in thanks. And Lord, we give it with an open heart. It's yours. Lord, we, you can have it. You can have our strength. You can have our um, um, hearts you can have everything Lord because you gave it to us in the first place we're all yours we submit to your law and your will we submit to your word
And Lord, we don't do it out of weakness. We do it because you gave us strength to ignore the world. And Lord, we love the fact that we are not in bondage to what this world thinks is so great. We do not have to follow the latest trend. We do not have to get worked up over the latest news story. We do not have to go out and buy the newest gadget and wadget that we have to work with. Lord, we just love that you've given us every freedom and every ability to be serving you with all of our hearts. And we love what you give us back. We love that you give us the fellowship, the gathering of the saints, the power of prayer. You give us song in our hearts. You give us eyes to see and understand what's in your, the mysteries of your word. Lord, we love the prophecies you've given us, the histories you've given us, the songs you've given us, the books of wisdom you've given us. You've given us everything in this letter showing us how to seek you and find you. Thank you so much. God, we give you all glory, all majesty, forever and ever, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.